Hey everyone, this is David Brandt with the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers. Before we get started with today's episode of Problem Solved, I wanted to remind you about registering for the upcoming IISE Annual Conference and Expo 2021, a virtual experience for learning and networking taking place May 22nd through the 25th. Whether it's live or virtual, there's always a reason I look forward to this event. But this year, we've got several reasons, the least of which is that Apple CEO and one of the world's most high-profile engineers, Tim Cook, will be accepting the Captains of Industry Award as part of this year's event. He's also scheduled to participate in a Q&A session during the virtual Captains of Industry Forum on May 24th with Auburn's IISE Student Chapter President, Annie Dorsey. We also have three terrific keynote speakers who will share their vast knowledge from their respective industries, including Walt Emmer from Waffle House, Andres Medeglia from Universidad de los Andes, and Nadine Sarter from the University of Michigan. Sign up on May 3rd and save on your registration. Learn more about our special guests, pre-conference workshops, and more by visiting iise.org annual. This is Problem Solved, the IISE podcast, where we talk to industrial and systems engineers about their work, ideas, and solutions. Hello, and welcome to Problem Solved. I'm IISE's Keith Albertson, and today we have a topic that should be a lot of fun to anyone out there who's a sports fan, and also to some of you who aren't. Our guest is Ricardo Valerde. He is a 2020 Distinguished Outreach Professor of Systems and Industrial Engineering at the University of Arizona. He's also a regular columnist for ISC Magazine. He is the founder and chief scientist of Science of Sport, a nonprofit foundation that develops programs to promote science, technology, engineering, and mathematics education, and hands-on STEM learning for students by using sports. Science of Sports is sponsored with various sports organizations and professional teams to provide camps, webinars, and other program offerings, and they managed to adjust their program to a remote environment during the pandemic to help keep kids engaged. And just as a little side note and a little inside baseball, if you will. We actually talked to Ricardo for an episode last year about this time, discussing the foundation's plans and the upcoming baseball season. And when you know, the pandemic came along and changed all of those plans. So we decided to wait and try again now that things are getting back a little bit closer to normal. Ricardo, welcome. Glad to have you with us. And thanks for doing a, a take two after that disruptive year we've just had. Thanks, Keith. It's great to be here uh, exactly a year later, I think. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, well, let's let's kind of start out as we did before and talk about, you know, your background. And, and you, you had mentioned how your own love for sports kind of in, in a way helped inspire you toward a career as an ISE and an educator. Talk about how that link came together for you. Absolutely. I grew up playing sports, baseball, basketball, tennis. I loved everything and at the same time uh, played competitively in high school and a little bit in college. Actually, my main sport was tennis and uh, around freshman year, I had to make a decision between studying engineering or playing tennis. It was really difficult to juggle both. So uh, as you can imagine, I chose engineering and that all worked well for me, of course, went on to graduate school went into academia and the connection to sports really didn't become prevalent for me again until I had my first academic job. 
And I was living in Boston at the time working at MIT. And somebody handed me a copy of the book Moneyball. And that particular experience, the reading of that book for me was transformational because being such a baseball fan and living in a town like Boston and reading a book like Moneyball, which explained how statistics are used to make decisions in baseball, it opened a whole new set of doors for me. And, and that's really what got all of this started is the same techniques that I was using to do research about defense systems, about technology, about how people work are the same exact techniques that people in baseball were using to analyze baseball players and teams. And so to me, it was a great analogy, a great connection. And that just got me going into what you now know as science of sport. And how did you come up with the idea to take that and apply it in lessons for young people to really help inspire them toward a, a STEM education? When did you begin to launch this and, and decide that this was a great platform to get kids involved? I met a colleague at Boston University, which is just across the river from MIT, Andy Andres. He's a biology professor there. And in the evenings, he works as a data caster or as a scorekeeper, you could say, at Fenway Park. And Andy exposed me to a bunch of uh, baseball uh, traditions and initiatives that were going on in, in the town of Boston. And one of them was a camp that he had run with middle school students at the MIT campus on the topic of the science of baseball. And I attended one of those camps and I saw the impact that something so engaging and so interactive had on these middle school students. And I asked Andy uh, whether he had written a curriculum or written any of this down. And he said, no, it just all came from his head. He all sort of had memorized this information and hadn't really formalized it into a written curriculum. And at that point is when I realized there's an opportunity here, I think, to make something a little bit more formal, a little bit more structured so that we can scale this idea and move it just beyond this one instance in Boston and take it to other places. And, and actually around that time, I got a job offer to move to the University of Arizona. So I didn't have a chance to implement my idea in Boston because of the cross-country move. And I had that, app, that uh, desire, sort of that itch that I wanted to scratch when I got to Tucson uh, about a year later. And, and that's really what, what primed me to start something formally uh, here in Arizona. Tell us, and of course, it's changed a little bit during the pandemic because you've had to go remotely. But in general, what are some of the activities? What are some of the the, the lessons that you're using? Just some examples of, of ways that you get kids thinking about science and engineering and math by using sports examples. Oh, I have so many. Let me start with the cross-country trip itself. Because as, as I told you, I was already primed to start thinking about the connection between STEM and baseball. And the moment that I accepted the position at the University of Arizona, I knew that I wanted to take a road trip across the country. 
and visit as many ballparks as possible between the Northeast and the Southwest. So as you can imagine, as a good industrial engineer would do, I would lay out a variety of options and try to find the optimal path, right? And in, in industrial engineering and in, in mathematics, that's called the traveling salesman problem, where you try to minimize the uh, number of miles between stops and you try to maximize the number of stops made. And so I approached it that way. And of course, it's actually quite complicated because uh, the schedules for each home team are different. Sometimes, you know, it's the Chicago Cubs might be at home. Sometimes they might be in another city. And it actually depends on your departure date from uh, point A to point B. So it was actually quite more complicated uh, optimization problem. Uh, but I tell kids this example because I show them very quickly how much mathematics there is in scheduling, not just the season, but mm -hmm. scheduling a road trip. Mm -hmm. And and then you can sort of take that beyond just the driving itself and think about how you would put together a budget uh, to take a family of four to a ball game. Uh, you have to decide where to sit because the prices are different in each location in the ballpark, but also the prices are different at, at each ballpark altogether. Um, you've got uh, some of the more expensive ballparks like the Yankee Stadium and, and Fenway Park because of demand. There's so, demand, so much demand there, not enough supply. And then you've got some more affordable ballparks in other parts of the country. So all that you start um, you know, applying a very simple arithmetic to try to come up with a calculation on how much money it would take to, uh, to take people, a family of four, to the ballpark. Um, and my favorite examples also have to do with things that we take for granted, which is reading the back of a baseball card and just understanding how analytics tell you something about a player's performance and distinguishing between the kinds of statistics that are on the back of a card, like the number of home runs, that's a count statistic, and a player's batting average is a rate statistic. And how do you use those and how you interpret those based on how many games or how many at-bats a player had? So you could see it, there's an infinite number of examples. I just touched on three of them, but this is a lifetime of work. Potentially, this could keep somebody very busy for a long time. <laughs> and, and prior to the pandemic, and we'll talk about what you've done during it, but uh, you were able to hold a lot of in-person camps, webinars. You had a lot of sports organizations and teams involved. I know I've seen many of the examples you've had. Tell us how you got some of the sports leagues and professional teams um, on board with this and, and a lot of their community outreach programs. Precisely when I got to Arizona, I had the opportunity to um, run a program at, at the U of A on our campus and partnered with the local middle school. And that program went very well. And somehow I got connected to the Arizona Diamondbacks. And they're up in Phoenix, about 100 miles north of us. So I got an invitation to meet with them. And they loved... Uh, what was going on with our camp. They loved the idea, the engagement, the, I, the support 
for education. So they signed on right away and they provided some funding to take the science and baseball program statewide. And so at that point, we pivoted to calling the program the Diamondbacks Science of Baseball. And, you know, one thing led to another. We got the San Diego Padres, the Anaheim Angels, the Colorado Rockies, and just started working our way uh, towards the east. And of course, the Atlanta Braves uh, are also our partners. And to date, we have over a, a third of Major League Baseball uh, using our curriculum in all sorts of different cities to impact their community and, and really uh, make the connection between STEM and baseball. Obviously, in the last year, you weren't able to do in-person events uh, for, for obvious reasons, but you were able to adjust and do some remote learning lessons to keep kids engaged. Certainly, everyone, every school has had to, to do that with kids and, and go to, re, to remote situation. I know uh, I saw a story recently, your dugout chats were a way to keep kids involved. Did you get a lot of good participation still and, and were able to, to keep that interest going um, uh, on a remote basis? Absolutely. Like you said, our standard delivery method was to have events at the ballpark. And it's a magical experience for some kids. They've never been to a ballpark before or, or they've only been there for a game. And when we had events in the past, this was an opportunity for kids to, to see baseball in a completely different light. With the pandemic and having no access to these stadiums anymore, we had to pivot to virtual delivery. and. You know, there's some fatigue associated with that, especially uh, in the late spring of last year when kids of all ages were uh, were now forced to start to learn online. Uh, the last thing you want to do is have another Zoom call mm-hmm. or, or have another uh, situation where they have to stand in front of their, their computer screen and listen to somebody. Right. So we had to get really creative. And one of the things that we did was created a series of videos that are essentially explainer videos where somebody watches a two or three minute explanation and then they are challenged to go out and do the activity or collect some data or um, demonstrate their understanding of the concept. And to us, sort of that back and forth of here's some instruction, now go do it, um, really was the the magic formula that allowed students to still uh, engage with us in a way that uh, was had a low barrier of entry because they could participate with uh, household items. So maybe all they needed was, uh, you know, some tape, a piece of paper and a pen, and maybe that's all they needed to go and do it. Or if they didn't have uh, anything to throw like a baseball or a tennis ball, maybe they could just take a, a sock and roll it into a ball. And that would be the object that they would throw. And then they, we would give them some specific guidance, like we'll go and draw your strike zone and try to throw and see if you can throw a strike or see how many times you throw a ball. And, and it's a very deliberate, very intentional, uh, but it was engaging. They had to get out of their chair in order to do it. It was not passive. It was a very active uh, kind of task that uh, was better than just sitting in front of a Zoom and, and listening to somebody give a presentation. 
uh, just being hands-on and because you said it, they've been seeing so much um so so many zoom lessons that just being able to to get up and move around and of course that's the fun of sports right there is being able to to move around some more um and it, now this this program has uh, uh had quite a bit of an outreach. Have you seen a really good response from a lot of different communities? There are, there are a lot of students out there who may not be as exposed to science and technology and math because of their environment, because maybe their opportunities aren't the same. Do you see a really good diverse group of kids helping to connect with these subjects by being able to use something like sports that everyone is enjoying and can appeal to? Absolutely. And we wanted to use this pandemic as an opportunity to promote equity by making our materials more accessible to students, uh, students who maybe were underserved or just didn't have the access to technology. So one of the things that we came up with was to change the way that we distributed our content that instead of using a teacher as the conduit, we would instead go directly to students. So I'll explain briefly how we used to do it in the past, and then you'll see the difference. Mm -hmm. In the past, what we would do is we would hold a teacher training at the ballpark and we would invite teachers. It would be free for the teachers because the ball club would uh, fund all the cost of the materials and, and uh, the food and, and even give the teachers tickets to go to the game. Mm -hmm. So it was a good experience for the teachers. They would be energized. They would see the stadium, uh, the sort of uh, behind the scenes, and then they would get our curriculum. We'll go through it with them. And then they would take home a bin of equipment and those materials in that bin were specifically designed for the teacher to run some of the lessons. Okay. But it was one kit, one bin for that classroom. And, and so that when that went away, our ability to train teachers directly went away. We had to then pivot and say, well, why don't we instead take the money that we would have spent on the teacher kit and instead maybe make 30 mini kits. And that way each student gets their own items. And we were able to get very creative with the budget and instead assemble 30 mini kits. We call those STEM activity bags. And that way each student would have, you know, the six or seven critical items that they would need to do the activities at home. And they would never have to go through their teacher to get the materials. And what that also allowed us to do is to get the kids away from the computer screen because now you have the materials at your disposal and you can do the activities yourself. You just have to follow along what the explainer video is trying to get you to do. And, and it also removes any cost barrier because we would ship the items directly to the student's home. Mm -hmm. and, and so now you didn't have to, uh, you know, have reliable Wi-Fi, or you didn't have to have to go to school because now the items were coming directly to your house. And there's another interesting unintended consequence of that, which is a lot of times there's more than one kid in the household. So it wouldn't just be the, the target a student that we were sending it to, but it would also maybe be their sibling who would experiment and would have access to the same materials. So so I think we were able to actually reach more people as a result and scale the program in a way that we just never were forced to think about pre-pandemic. 
Well, that's and adjusting on the fly, being flexible. Those are ISC lessons always uh, and continuous improvement. What kind of feedback have you gotten um, from parents and teachers? I mean, they have to be relieved in a way to be able to see kids get up and move around and have some hands-on learning. What kind of uh, buy-in have you gotten from educators as to the success of this program and, and how it's engaging kids? Well, we've been very fortunate to have tremendous support from the ball clubs and and that's translated into a lot of energy and excitement from schools uh, not just teachers but also school administrators and and so we actually use analytics to try to determine where we should focus the program and what i mean by that specifically is rather than just providing um, random lessons maybe uh, geometry because we think it's interesting or statistics because we think it's, you know, low hanging fruit rather than just shooting at the wall randomly. What we do instead is we talk to district leadership um, and in these school districts and we ask them, tell us where your students are struggling. And they can answer that very easily actually through the data from standardized test scores. So in uh, any given uh, school district, I'll I'll actually use a local one, Cobb County, out in your neck of the woods. Mm -hmm. So we were working with Cobb County. We asked them that question. Where are your students struggling? And then they told us, uh, here's the data from the standardized tests. Uh, You can see where our students are struggling based on that information. Then we said, great. Then we can tackle the areas that need the most help. And that's where we'll focus the curriculum. And so that's where you can have maximum impact in the areas that need the most help, right? So so if there's a set of students who are struggling with expressions and equations, just to give an example, well, maybe that's what we focus the curriculum on. And then you can justify the investment and you can demonstrate to the sponsors, we're having maximum impact because they, these students were already good at other things. They were already good at geometry. So we don't need to uh, reemphasize that. Mm-hmm. But, but they were struggling with expressions and equations. So that's where we go. And have you heard from them uh, directly or indirectly? What kind of success? Have they seen any change in test scores? Or uh, are there instances where uh, you or a teacher, someone just sees the light come on? Are you seeing the results essentially come uh, from, from these kids after they've gone through the program? Absolutely. We do a lot of assessment ourselves. We do pre and post tests to figure out where the students are before they engage with us and then where they are a few weeks or a few months afterwards. And we have seen upward trends, no question. And we also um, are very proud of the fact that because most of our programming is offered in the summer, we also address this issue of summer learning loss. So we turn that around and we actually end up with summer learning gain we're emphasizing the, the, uh, the weaknesses, essentially we're addressing the weaknesses directly. And as a result, instead of falling behind, they're actually, uh, stronger going into the next academic year. Uh, so absolutely that, I mean, we are data driven. I mean, we have to eat our own dog food, so to speak on this kind of thing. And, and so unless we're making informed decisions with data, we're, we're really, uh, 
you know, wouldn't be following our own philosophy. And being involved in the summer by keeping it fun, I imagine you keep kids involved. No kid wants to sit and do uh, uh, homework in the middle of summer, but if they're out being able to throw balls around and, and do things that are sports related, that's that's got to keep them interested uh, uh, through those what normally would be non-learning months, right? Precisely. So uh, how how many people do you have on your team now? You you it's, uh, and and how has the science of sport grown? What what is sort of the the staff situation? What sort of folks do you have all kind of contributing to this effort now? Yeah, so we have a staff of five people. Uh, Darren, Ashley, Megan, and Carly, and they're spread out all over the country. In fact, uh, Darren and Ashley are in LA. Megan is in Phoenix and Carly is in Chicago. So we're a, we're a virtual organization. Uh, Darren is the executive director. So he runs the day-to-day operations. Um, he used to be with the Diamondbacks, actually. And, and so what happened is Darren uh, was my counterpart in the program. So I was doing the academic part and he was doing the, uh, the baseball part. And after a few years of uh, partnering with him, I, I asked him if he would be willing to come over and, and work for science sport. And, and he made the, the jump from, uh, you know, left the MLB club and came over to um, join science of sport. And as a result, we were able to grow significantly because we now could approach multiple baseball teams and we could even grow to other sports. So Darren helped us establish the science of soccer program with major league soccer teams, the science of basketball program with NBA teams. And we now also have a science of Olympic sports curriculum, which as you know, we've got the Olympics coming up. Those got postponed too, but th- mm-hmm. we've got them coming up uh, this summer in Tokyo. So that's the timing is great. Yeah. What are your short-term, I guess, and long-term plans? I mean, as we move past the pandemic, and of course, as of right now, we don't know how that's going to play out, but we appear to be coming to the point where, uh, you know, kids are back in school in most places now, and there may be, in the not-too-distant future, a chance to do things in person again. What sort of uh, future plans do you have? What sort of outreach are you hoping to get back into camps and that sort of thing uh, before too long? How's that shaking out right now? Well, our first objective is to just get back to what we were doing before. We lost a lot of clients uh, over the pandemic because, you know, their budgets were very tight. So number one objective in the near term is to recover to the state that we were at a year ago. And and we're seeing that already, by the way. We're seeing our uh, past clients come back and, and tell us that we're, they're ready to re-engage. So that's great. And we've actually just uh, uh, agreed to us do a program for the Chicago Cubs. So we now have a new client, um, which we didn't have a year ago. Um, And then step two is try to dream up uh, our next, uh, you know, our next move in terms of the scope of what we offer. And there's been a lot of discussions about esports for us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you really paid attention to, how kids were spending their time during the pandemic, they were playing a lot of video games. Mm-hmm. And, and so what can we do in relation to that? And how can we merge these worlds of traditional sports and e-sports? And we're not the first people to ask that question. I mean, it, it turns out some of the franchises that we work with 
actually have invested in esports heavily. So I'll give you a couple of examples. The Dallas Mavericks, uh, who are owned by Mark Cuban, they actually also own a competitive esports team. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you can look all around. Uh, they're not the only one. They're, they exist all over the, the country and actually all over the world. There are other sports teams in countries like Australia and, and in a lot of places in Europe as well that are investing in esports. And so for us, the overlap is quite obvious when you think about some of the esports like the uh, Madden NFL game. So you've got the connection to science football there. Uh, the FIFA soccer game, science of soccer is the overlap. But there's also a game called Rocket League, which is two race cars playing soccer against each other. <laughs> and the, the laws of physics are sort of out the window. It's, it's you know, uh, <laughs> this pretend world where, where you, don't, you know, F doesn't necessarily equal MA. But... <laughs> But you can see the connection. Like, hey, if somebody wants to uh, get really good at Rocket League and also learn soccer, there's the overlap. And and so our thinking along those lines is, well, how can we take advantage of the fact that there's just so much accessibility to esports, and there there are a lot of lessons to be learned there as well about how the game works and what the STEM is, and we're no longer limited to just the the you know, geometry or the, uh, you know, the expressions and equations. Now we, we can bring in technology mm-hmm. a lot more clearly. And, and one interesting connection is, well, how do you even develop a game? How do you, is, now you've got computer programming. Now you've got engineering and it's a lot more evident. And, and how do you, play across a network. Now mm-hmm. you've got computer networking and computer science. So that opens up a whole new uh, set of opportunities for us, which elementary and middle school kids, they understand esports. Mm-hmm. They're natives. I mean, they grew up in that environment. They don't know what a CD-ROM is. They don't know what a floppy disk is, you know, but they know what Wi-Fi is all about. So let's use that to our advantage. And you get a bunch of kids who, you know, who may not be baseball fans or basketball fans, but they're into gaming. So now you've tapped into a whole new group of potential students, I would think. there. Absolutely. And it, it sort of makes the data on the back of a baseball card seem so archaic. Um, when you think about gamers and esports, there's a whole culture of analytics around that. And, and think about how much more data they can collect about a uh, you know, esports players performance. It's terabytes of data. It's amazing. Well, we grew up with the baseball card, so I can certainly relate to that. And you mentioned one of your inspirations. We talked about this last time too, was reading Moneyball and just the rise and, and the growth of data analytics in sports is has gone off the charts in the last few years. We have teams now that have data analysts on staff. There's some general managers who have more of a background in that than they than they do in the actual sport. It has really taken over sports in, in pretty much every sport that we see is relying on that kind of data analytics now, isn't it? Is, is, is this something that's just going to continue to grow? Absolutely. I mean, I think Major League Baseball is the farthest, the most sophisticated of any of the pro sports in terms of how they utilize data, how much they invest in uh, personnel 
to help them understand not just uh, their current team, but also draft drafting decisions and, and even, you know, players in their minor league system. Uh, and, you know, I think the Houston Astros for a long time were known as a, as a leader uh, in major league baseball in terms of their analytics. Um, I would put the LA Dodgers on that list as well. I mean, uh, I've gotten to know their uh, sports performance department. They have seven or eight people mm-hmm. uh, with STEM degrees that are doing all sorts of analytics of not just the players on the, the 40 man roster, but also their minor league system. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a massive investment and any edge that you can get uh, in that sport translates uh, to wins and hopefully translates to revenue. And it's no coincidence. Those are successful teams too. So I think, you know, they sort of set the model. Other teams see how they're using it effectively to draft, to develop players and to strategize. And then they're all going to follow suit because that's the way it works in sports. Somebody has a good idea. Somebody's going to take it. That's right. Well, Ricardo, this has been great. And we uh, definitely are glad we could follow up again and, and talk to you about this. Anything else about science of sport that you'd like to add? Uh, just just to let people know, it's at sciencesport.org if they want to go check out more on the web. Anything else that you'd like to pass along to folks uh, if, if they're interested? Yeah, please visit our website. You've got, you got it right. We're on uh, all the social media channels as well. We're always posting materials and videos, and uh, we'd love to develop new relationships and new cities. I mean, we're, we are in a bunch of cities already, but we don't need to have a professional sports team in a city for us to go there. I mean, we, we've worked in, uh, in places there are no pro sports. And, and there's still an opportunity to uh, deploy our curriculum. So, so please reach out if there's an opportunity to have an impact in your community. We'd love to be there. Well, great. Well, thanks so much. It sounds like a fun program. It's something I know I would have enjoyed if I was, uh, if it was available when I was around and my kids as well. Good luck with it. And uh, we hope it uh, grows a lot more young industrial systems engineers, as well as maybe some baseball general managers down the road. That's right. We're looking for the next Joe Girardi, who was an industrial engineer at uh, Northwestern. Yeah. Manager of the Phillies. Yeah, absolutely. So, so looking for the next Joe Girardi out there, uh, we we will, uh, find him or her and we will teach them what they need to know so that they can be the next manager or commissioner of baseball. Well, great. Well, thanks so much again. Good luck. Uh, We're looking forward to, we hope, uninterrupted uh, sports seasons to come and uh, good luck to the Diamondbacks and, and everyone out there as well. Thanks again for your time. Thanks, Keith. Thanks for listening to this episode of Problem Solved, the IISC podcast, a production of the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers in Metro Atlanta. This podcast is produced by David Brandt, Keith Albertson, and Michael Hughes, and edited by David Brandt. You can listen to all episodes of Problem Solved and learn about sponsorship opportunities by visiting our website, podcast.iise.org. You can also learn more about IISE at the Institute's website, www.iise.org.